Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Can you remember a time when you were really frightened? I mean, you were really, really scared. I know a lot of us men don't like to admit that, but uh, there were times where we were really frightened. Maybe, maybe it was a case when you were little and, and you, you got lost. Uh, maybe you've just this week gotten a, a very painful diagnosis from your doctor and it frightens you. Uh, maybe you're worried because you heard at work that they're going to start laying people off and you're wondering if your job's on the chopping block. Maybe you're just frightened of certain things. Uh, we had a, a couple visiting us one time and our very pretty fluffy black cat walked into the living room and the woman went <gasps> like this and pulled her feet up onto the sofa and was very scared and the cat was 20 feet away from her. And I thought, we better put the cat in the basement. Oh, my cat's still in counseling. It's just, it's, it's that bad. I remember a time when, uh, this is one of the earliest memories of my life. Uh, I remember as a, a, probably not much older than a toddler, maybe, you know, like pre-K, you know, four years old, three years old. And I remember sitting on my father's lap during a thunderstorm, looking out the living room window, the picture window, sitting on a rocking chair, he'd wrap me up in a little blanket, and I remember sitting on his lap and just watching the flashes of lightning and hearing the wind and seeing the rain. It was dark, it was kind of scary, and I remember it was, a, it was something that I had been afraid of, the loud crashing booms of the thunder, the flashes of lightning. I was a kid that always had to go to bed early and then it seemed like the thunderstorms would come right after we had gone to bed, and it just, it was always a spooky thing to me. But there was something about my dad being there with me that brought great comfort. I hope you've had situations in your life where somebody was able to come alongside of you when you went for that doctor's consultation, that you weren't alone, that when you had to deal with maybe that rejection at work, that you weren't alone, when you were in that very terrified situation, maybe you were driving home late at night on a long road trip, Uh, and it's raining, and it's a dark road, and you don't know the way. I hope you weren't by yourself. There's something about having someone with you to take away your fear. It's, It's like fear gets cut in half when there's someone there to share it, someone to encourage you. The book of Revelation, which we are just starting to explore here at the chapel, is a a book that reminds us about very terrifying and frightening things that will take place in the future. But it tells us that we don't have to face these things by ourselves, that Jesus is with us. And guess what? The theme of Revelation is Jesus wins. And so because he's there, because he's present, because he wins, we don't have to be afraid. We can have courage no matter what we face, no matter how dark and dreary, no matter how frightening and uncertain the future may seem to you or to me. And so what I'd like us to do is, is look at a, a, an opening vision that kind of starts off the book of Revelation. John's, the, John the disciple is writing this, and um, it's like at the end of the first century, and Jesus has come, and he's giving a vision of, of himself and his plan for the future, and As we look at this opening vision, we're seeing Jesus as he really is. And yes, 
It's frightening, it's terrifying, it's awe-inspiring, but he's there. He's present. And he's there to bring his comfort and he calls us to serve him in the process. You and I don't have to be afraid because Jesus is there in the church. He's present in the church. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus is present in our church. He's here with us today. And we need to remember that. Would you take your Bibles, please? Let's turn to the book of Revelation. And this is on page 1028, if you'd like to use the Bible from the chair in front of you. Revelation chapter 1, page 1028. We're just going to see, see this vision of Jesus. This is how the book of Revelation starts off. You were saying, ah, I was wondering when you know, the giant falling stars take place and the big plagues and the beast and the Antichrist and 666. When, is, when do we get to the, 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 the juicy, gory part? And, and it's not yet because we need to see Jesus in his glory, not gory, go, glory. And we'll see him that way. So we're going to start reading in verse 9. And I encourage you to follow along, please. John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of, of Jesus. I was in a spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, and those that are, and those that are, are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, John is spending his Sunday afternoon, I don't know how you're going to spend yours, maybe you're going to watch a football game or eat a nice dinner at a restaurant or have friends over or take a long, well-deserved nap, whatever it is. John is worshiping, he's, he's worshiping God in the spirit, he's glorifying God, and he's interrupted. 
And he's interrupted, it says, as he was on this island of Patmos, which is this rocky, barren island off the coast of what is today modern-day Turkey. It's the, the area called Asia Minor, and he's in exile. He's been banished there by the governor of, of Asia Minor. He's been sent there, and he's in exile because, it says, he was preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John has gotten in trouble. He's been banished to this island. Now, don't think of a a rocky, deserted island where nobody is there. There are other people living there, but John can't do his regular ministry. He can't be where he normally is, and he's in exile on this little rocky, barren island, and he can't leave it. But Jesus meets him there. Jesus comes to see him there. John, as he introduces himself to his readers, he says three things about himself. Do you notice this? He says, I'm a, I'm a participant. I'm a sharer. I've gone through these three things as well, just like you. I participate in tribulation. I participate in the kingdom. And I participate in the patient endurance or perseverance, it says there. And so what is he saying by this? He's saying this letter is for people. It's coming from somebody who's gone through persecution. That's what tribulation means. And is part of the kingdom and has had patient endurance that's in Jesus. I'm going through that. You're going through that. And this letter is for us in the midst of that. You and I may think, well, I'm not experiencing persecution. My life's pretty easy. There are a lot of other people around the world today who are suffering greatly because of Christ. They're being severely persecuted in the Middle East and in North Korea and Vietnam and Russia and China and other countries around the world. Even in free countries, people are being persecuted as well for the name of Christ as they lose their job or they're being uh, kicked out of their families and such. And so persecution is part of, parcel of what happens to those who follow Christ. But just as we go through persecution and suffering in this life, there's also this promise of being part of the kingdom. And that's a reality right now as well. That we're part of Christ's kingdom. He is our king and he rules over us and he leads our lives. And so we have this and, 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 and that's our assurance, that's our hope. That, that's our comfort and encouragement. And so that's, that's what we have in Christ. And so... We've got suffering here, but we're also part of this kingdom. How do people who are going through suffering for the cause of Christ really enjoy and experience the benefits of his kingdom? John says the the, the catalyst for making that happen is patient endurance. You know, having a, a trust in Christ that doesn't fail, that doesn't quit. I keep depending on him. I keep relying on him. And I keep following him no matter what. And and even though I go through this great suffering, I know I'm going to experience his kingdom. I can persevere. So that's John describing himself, his situation, and what was happening, and and the context of where he's writing this letter from, and and how Jesus has appeared to him. This is the context of all that. And notice as John is worshiping and serving, it says that he was in the spirit, on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. This was not a little whisper. It was not a little gentle tap on the shoulder. I didn't mean to scare you. It was nothing like that. Oh, you start, yeah, you startled me because you had a voice that sounds like a trumpet, a blast to get our attention. So there's no mistaking that we need to pay attention right now. And the command is given to write what you see in a book and distribute it to these seven churches. 
The seven churches that are described here, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, these are cities that were all around the region where John was pastoring in Asia Minor. They formed a, a circular postal route, so to speak. They were distribution hubs to the other towns in that region. And the idea is, is that I think Jesus is trying to say to John, I want you to write to these churches, not because they're the most important churches, not because they're the biggest churches, not because they're the only churches, but they are representative of all the other churches. The things that are going on in each of these churches, the letters that I'm writing, could I have you write to them? There's a message for each one of the churches and for all the other churches as well. In other words, you could say, well, how, you know, he didn't say Littlestown Chapel, so I guess I don't have to listen. And the truth of the matter is, you better listen. We need to hear what he has to say because the message is for us and all the other Christians at all of the other times and all other places as well. And so he's speaking to the church. So John hears this, and of course, if you're hearing somebody talking behind you and you don't quite recognize the voice and it scared you, you want to know, what was that? John turns around in verse 12 and it says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In other words, the whole scene changed. Instead of it being a church service or I'm out on the hillside or the living room of my home just having a quiet time of prayer and meditation or personal worship, instead of some kind of situation I'm familiar with, rather than that, I turn around and I see all these lampstands around me. The, the furniture's been rearranged and, and it looks totally different than what I'm accustomed to. And when it says lampstands, don't think of a candlestick like on top of your dining room table. A single stick with a single candle. Think of something more like what's in the picture here, uh, the menorah. A candelabra that would come up and maybe be on a, a post and, and have the seven arms branching out with seven lights. Don't think of a candle, think of an oil lamp that would have a wick and would have a, an oil reservoir and that they would, these, these oil lamps would burn. God commanded Moses to make one of these menorahs, these sacred menorahs, when the tabernacle was built. We read about that in the book of Exodus. And the tabernacle was a tent portable temple uh, that, was, that needed light on the inside. It had heavy fabric and, and animal skins for the walls. So it was dark inside. It needed a light. And so God said, make a, make a lampstand and put it inside there. And, and in that first room of the of the, the tabernacle, there was a lampstand, there was a table with loaves of bread that represented the tribes of Israel, and there was an altar, a golden box that you would light incense on top of, and that represented the prayers of the people of Israel. And that was the furniture inside that first room of the tabernacle. One of the furniture pieces was the, the, the lampstand, the golden lampstand. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, as, as God had commanded him, the temple was so much larger, but just as dark as the tabernacle, that, that God had Solomon actually build 10 of those lampstands. And you, they were like five on each side, and there was still the table with the bread on it, and there was still the altar, the box of incense, and they would do that, the burn incense there. But there were these 10 lampstands. When John sees these seven lamps, 
Seven lampstands? Right away, he's going to start thinking, I'm in a temple. I'm in the dwelling place of God. I'm in his presence. And it might surprise him that there's only seven and not ten. But he's going to recognize that he is in the presence of God in his holy place. That's what John is recognizing here as he begins to describe it. Now, it's not just the furniture that startles him, though. It's, it's who's inside this room with this sacred furniture. And so it says, it's described here, he sees someone. He says, in, in the midst of the lampstands, there was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, there's a couple things that you and I need to figure out. What does he mean by son of man? And what's the deal about his long robe that goes you know, from his neck and shoulders all the way down to his feet? That's how long it is. And, and what's with the gold sash? Okay. I want you to take your Bible, hold your place there in Revelation. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. Excuse me, the book of Daniel, pardon me. The book of Daniel, chapter 7. Okay. The thing that's interesting is that we'll be going back and forth to the book of Daniel many times this year when we go into Revelation and study it and we'll come back out and look at some other things and go back to Revelation. We'll be, we'll be looking at the book of Daniel many times. But here in Daniel chapter 7, I want you to notice in verse 13, this is on page 745, 745 if you're using one of the Bibles from church. <clears throat> Daniel's having a set of visions he has just seen someone called the Ancient of Days. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But in verse 13, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was present before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nation, peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Daniel writes that this person that he sees standing there among the sacred menorahs, the sacred lampstands, he describes him as a son of man. He's referring back here to Daniel chapter 7. He's saying that it's not just a human being, it's somebody special. Somebody who's human but somebody who's divine. Scholars understand that what Daniel is referring to in chapter 7, the Son of Man, is the Messiah. The Messiah coming in His glory, power, and authority. And you can see the description there. You know, Every kingdom bows to Him. He has authority. He has dominion over all of them. He is not just a human. He is a superhuman in the sense of He's human and divine. God and man ruling over the nations of the earth and defeating the beasts that are described in, in Daniel chapter 7 as well that are also paralleled and pictured in the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that in weeks to come as well. So Daniel sees this messianic, this, this divine man, this superman, the new Adam, the second Adam, standing there among the lampstands, and he's dressed in this white robe. He's wearing a robe like the high priest would wear when he would minister in the, in the tabernacle or the temple. He's got a golden sash across his chest. Not a belt. 
that a, a day laborer would have that he'd tuck his tunic in so he could go do his work and run and work and lift and things like that. No, he's a very dignified, important individual. He's a VIP, so to speak, a very important person. He's, he's the high priest and he has authority and the dignity of his office is seen in the long white robe and the golden sash that he's wearing. He's a priest. He's standing among the sacred lampstands in a temple area. The first thing that I want you to notice here about what John sees regarding Jesus is that Jesus is with us. He's with us as our priest. We don't need men to serve as priests for us because Jesus is our priest. He's the one who makes prayers for us. He is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for us. He is the one who's pleading and praying and appealing to God the Father for us on our behalf. He is the one who opens the door and he himself has given us access to God in a way that no other human being, no other religion, no other ritual, and no, uh, no way that we ourselves could ever gain access to God. Jesus Christ has given us that. He is our priest. And so now we can boldly go into the presence of God and make our prayers known. Now we can go boldly into his presence and ask for his forgiveness and cleansing, and he gives it. We can go boldly into his presence, even when we're ashamed to face anybody else. We can go to God and know that we never have to be ashamed because he lifts the burden of our shame, the burden of our guilt, and he welcomes us into his presence. What is Jesus doing among the candlesticks? Well, what did the priests do among the candlesticks and the, and the lampstands? What did he do? He had to trim the wicks so they would burn brighter. He had to fill up the reservoirs of oil so they would keep burning and not burn out. And there's a, a certain imagery here behind the lampstands also of being something that is a witness and a testimony to the glory of God. So we're in the presence of God to worship Him, to be with Him, and to witness for Him. To let our light shine before the people of this world so that they would glorify God and trust in Him. And so Jesus is with us and we don't have to be afraid because He is our priest. We will never be rejected by God. We will never be disapproved by Him or, or turned away from Him because Jesus Christ has opened the door and gained us access to God. He is our priest. He is with us right here in this church. So we don't have to be afraid. Maybe you're trying to earn God's favor. Maybe you're trying to get his approval somehow by your performance, what you're doing here. I want to be a good mom, a good dad. I want to work hard. I want to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't want to burden anybody. I want to serve. And maybe you're doing all that because you're hoping that God will like you. This passage and many others is saying that Jesus is already your priest and he's already opened the door for God to love you and like you always. You have access to the Father through Jesus because He is your perfect priest. Now John, as he continues to see this vision of Jesus, he, he's, he's describing Jesus and he begins to use this very picturesque, vivid language to describe Him in different ways. So far, you know, the, the voice that was really loud and the robe and the sash and the candlesticks, that doesn't sound too weird, but then you start getting into this next stuff and it's kind of frightening. It even sounds a little grotesque as he's trying to describe Him. It says that the hairs of His head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
and his eyes were like a flame of fire. I was looking up on the internet the pictures of, of artists who tried to represent what this looks like, literally. And all the Jesuses looked like, you know, Kenny Rogers with a suntan. And uh, that's, that's, and if, if you don't know who Kenny Rogers is, um, talk to me later. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you, you young people, okay? All right. So, um, <clears throat> So the hairs of his white like wool, like snow, but his eyes like a flame of fire. And the, and the picture here is of the torches people would use in ancient times, you know, portable fire to be able to look into the inner recesses of a room, a dark house, a cave, a barn, something like that. And, you know, it was night, it was dark, and you couldn't see, and you'd use your torch like a flashlight. And he says your, his eyes were like torches, piercing you know, looking deeply, intently into these inner recesses, the hidden parts of our lives. Jesus' eyes were like that, very discerning. The white hair, a sign of wisdom. Every culture venerates the, uh, those of us who are white-haired and becoming white-haired. You know, the accumulated wisdom of our experience. And here's Jesus the one who is the wisest of the wise men, the one who is the most discerning of all the discerners, the, the most diligent and faithful, the most, judge, most just judge that there is because he sees all the facts. And the imagery that John uses to describe Jesus, it's a, it's a metaphor, it's literally true, but it's not in a sense of, in a wooden sense that you know, he's got eyes that look like he, they're on fire, or hair that's automatically looking like windswept white hair like Kenny Rogers or you know, Charleston Heston on Mount Sinai. But it's, it's the imagery of his wisdom. It's the imagery of his piercing discernment. It says his feet were like burnished bronze. Bronze was a metal that was used in building the altars outside the tabernacle where the animals were sacrificed and atonement was made for our forgiveness and cleansing. And so bronze has this connotation in Scripture of, of judgment and punishment and correction of sin and correction of wrong and, and uh, atonement for guilt and the removal of shame through a sacrifice. It says his feet were like that. Well, why his feet? Why not his hands? Why his feet? In Scripture, when it talks about someone being an authority and someone being a conqueror, it, you know, it often would, would say things like that the, he would put, the conquering king would put his feet on the neck of his enemies, literally. This is a, a, a symbolic way of saying, I've subjugated you, I've conquered you, and you're under my foot. It was a picture of submission and defeat to be under the foot of somebody. And John is saying, Jesus' feet, this Son of Man, His feet are like bronze. There's this judgment, and it's His feet because He's going to stomp and trample on those that oppose Him. I mean, we sing in the Battle Hymn of the Republic that you know, He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And it's, a, it's, a, it's imagery that Susanna Bates took when she wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic from passages like this that remind us that the feet of a judge trample out those that are opposed to, to, uh, those that are opposed to righteousness and justice. He conquers those that are wicked and evil. And the picture here is Jesus does that. And it says that his feet are bronze and they're refined as in the fire, just purified and glowing and gleaming in brilliance. 
It says that his voice was like the roar of many waters. And I think this just reminds us again that when, when the Son of Man speaks, whatever verdict he may render, whatever pronouncement or announcement that he makes, no one can say, I didn't hear you. I didn't catch that. What? What were you saying? Were you talking to me? There's no, there's no mistaking that. It's, it's like the roar of many waters. If you've been at Niagara or some other great waterfall, or if you've been along the shore at the ocean when the, the waves are really high, and if you're close to the water and you try to talk to other people, you can't. You have to get away from shore. Get up on the boardwalk because then you can talk because the noise of the water, of the waves, of the crashing water is so loud you can't hear each other. And, and John is saying that when Jesus spoke to me, it was so loud There was no ifs, ands, or buts. I knew exactly what he was saying. And there was no arguing against the verdict. And there was no appeal because he spoke and I knew the verdict had been rendered. And it says that in his right hand he held seven stars. The seven stars are described at the end of the chapter. You saw that when we read a moment ago. Those seven stars represent the angels of the churches. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But they somehow have influence over the churches. And the right hand of God is the hand of power and authority. And whatever you hold in your hand, you have control over. And John is saying, I saw these stars in his hand and I I knew he was the one in charge. All of this imagery, the white hair, the glowing face the feet of bronze, the loud voice, all of this, all of this description that we've just looked at, eyes that are flaming fire, it's all pictures of Jesus as the judge. Yes, he's the priest. Yes, he's in the midst of the church. Yes, he's trimming our wicks and making our lights shine bright. Yes, he's leading us in worship and leading us in witness for the glory of God. Yes, he gives us access access into the presence of God. But he stands there not just passively watching what's going on. He's there analyzing what's taking place. He's critiquing what's taking place. He's the judge. And I know it's sometimes hard for us to think about this because we just talked about the fact that Jesus died to open the door he was a sacrifice he sacrificed himself to open the door for us to be in the presence of God but what took place when he offered that sacrifice he took our judgment he suffered and died for us for me for you so by dying on the cross he died the death we needed to die he did it in our place So now we can be forgiven and accepted by God. We can escape judgment because Jesus was judged for us on the cross. And you say, how do you know that's true? Because he was raised from the dead. And he's alive forevermore. But what about this business here where it describes Jesus like a judge who renders a verdict that no one can argue against? I thought Jesus took our judgment. The Bible does tell us that there will be a day of judgment for Christians. Not, do you get to go to heaven or not? That's already been settled if you've trusted in Christ. You don't have to worry about that. But it's a day of judgment in the sense of, have you been faithful in serving Christ or not? It's called the judgment, it's called the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ. It, it's, it's, like a, it's like the judges at the Olympics when you're competing in a sport and they give you a score 
And Jesus is saying, have you been faithfully serving me? Now, not for my approval and not for my love, but have you just been faithful in what I've called you to do? Have you done a good job? It's like that, that divine spiritual performance review at the end of time. Have we really served Jesus well or not? Again, it's not about performing to get his approval, but because we are approved, we serve him and we do his will. Jesus is going to call the church to give an account. In fact, when we read in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, we're going to see the letters, the short little letters that Jesus had John write to each of those seven churches. And in almost every case, they all have things that Jesus commends them for. And in almost every case, there's something there that he critiques and says, you know what though? You're falling short here. And I want your lamp to burn brightly. I want your witness to be bold. I want your worship to be strong. So can you deal with this? Would you listen to me and deal with this so that you can be an even brighter witness and even bolder worshiper of me in doing my work and doing my will? Can you do that? And that's what he calls him to do. And so Jesus is the judge. He's our judge in that sense. I know that may sound like, boy, you know, you're saying he's a judge, but he's not our judge. He was judged for us. It's just the idea of accountability that we're accountable to Jesus for what we do with the time, the talents, and the treasure he gives to us, for the gifts and resources he's given to us. Have we used them for his glory or have we used them selfishly? We're answerable for that. So Jesus is with us. We don't have to be afraid because he won't reject you. You can't lose your salvation. You won't get kicked out of the family of God. Don't be afraid of that. But take it very seriously. Have I faithfully served Christ or not? That's something that we need to be aware of. And actually, I'm thankful for this vision because now I won't be caught off guard. I can live a life that truly honors Christ today because of what he's done for me. But the description keeps going. It says, He had in his hand these seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Some of the pictures that I've seen of this vision, it shows Jesus standing there and he's all glorious looking like Kenny Rogers and this whole thing. And he's got, like he's biting down on this giant sword. It looks nearly silly. But that's the point that he's trying to make. It's the words that he said are like a sword. In fact, the sword that he describes here is not the typical sword that a Roman soldier would carry. We talked about this back during the summer when we were looking at Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God and the army of God. And the, the sword that we carry there was a short sword like a Roman would carry that was used in hand-to-hand -hand combat when they were fighting the enemies. No, this was a sword that someone riding in the cavalry Somebody, a mounted soldier on horseback would carry. It was a long broadsword like you, like you see in Lord of the Rings or something like that. I've always, how do they handle those swords? You put them in the scabbard, you walk around, you turn around and you knock down three other people because that thing's sticking out. How, I don't know how that all works. And, and, and how do you really handle it in a battle because it's so heavy? But really, what they would do is they would take big, long, broad swords, double-edged swords like that, and they would get on their horseback, and they would race toward the enemy line, and there were those foot soldiers, and they would just take the sword, and they would hold it down, and they would just swing it back and forth like a scythe. You know what a scythe is? Have you ever seen pictures of the Grim Reaper? 
and he's got that stick thing with that knife thing on the end, that's a scythe. You use it to mow grass. You, cut, you have to sharpen it all the time, but you use it to cut down weeds and grass and brush. And they would use it like a scythe and just slice and cut. Injure people that way. Kill people that way. Jesus says, the sword that I'm using is this long, broad sword, this Thracian sword. It's double-edged, it's sharp, and it slices down all my enemies without a fight. My face is shining. The picture here, Jesus' face is shining like the brilliance of the sun. And all of this imagery of the sword and the sunshine and the glory and the full strength of the sunlight, it's all imagery that portrays the divine warrior. The warrior from God that comes to our aid to defend us. The judge disciplines us, but the warrior defends us. And so the message of Revelation is is that there's evil coming and there are going to be empires and kingdoms that will array themselves against the nation of Israel and array themselves against the people of God. But we have a defender. Jesus wins. He's our defender. He's our warrior that comes to our aid. He fights for us. And we never are defeated. In fact, he's going to describe that he defeats our greatest enemies, the cosmic powers that are arrayed against us. Jesus has already defeated them. So John, when he sees Jesus, yes, he sees all this fantastic imagery that describes Jesus and his power and glory and majesty and authority. But he sees Jesus as a priest who opens the door to God and a judge who disciplines us when we're wrong and the defender, the warrior who fights for us and conquers our enemies. And that Jesus, priest, judge, warrior, is that Jesus who's with us. And we don't have to be afraid what the future holds. Now, the thing is, though, it says in verse 17 that John was afraid. (laughs) Because I think if you and I were in John's shoes, we would do exactly what he did. In verse 17 it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He fainted, and it was like he had just totally passed out, was cold and lifeless. Dead, dead. Fell over that way. Look what happened. But he, the Son of Man, Jesus, he laid his right hand on me. And John, John uses an emphatic word there. He laid his right hand on me. Just saying, you know, he could have arranged the candlesticks. He could have go fight, fought the beast. He could have gone up to heaven to pray. But no, he stooped down. He put his hand on me because I was the one that was afraid. I was the one who had passed out. I was the one who was as good as dead. And he laid his right hand on me. And that's always when that happens, when God lays his hand on you, it's a position, it's a, it's a laying on of blessing. It's a laying on of power. It's a laying on of guidance and protection. It's God saying, I'm, I'm, I'm empowering you and I'm comforting you. John is receiving the comfort of the Lord this way. And, and Jesus says to him, fear not, it's a command. Stop being afraid. You don't, you don't have to be afraid. I don't get that. <laughs> because, I mean, you're so terrifying. You look like a monster, Jesus. You're scaring the day, living daylights out of me. Why shouldn't I be afraid? Because I'm not against you. I'm for you. Yes. Yes. 
I fought against the devil and I defeated the devil. I fought against death and I defeated death. I fought against all the powers of darkness and I've defeated them. Every enemy that's arrayed against you, I've defeated them. You don't have to be afraid because I'm the conqueror and I'm on your side. And so he says, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus starts off describing himself by saying, I am. Those are the words again that that Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter three, I am. Who, Who do I tell Pharaoh? Who do I tell the children of Israel that I'm supposed to come and tell them that they're supposed to leave Egypt and the Pharaoh's supposed to let you go? Who do I tell sent me? Who do I say sent me? And, and Yahweh from the burning bush says, tell them I am that I am sent you. When, when God calls himself I am, he's not saying I'm the one that's eternally existent. It's that, it's bigger than that though. I am the one who's alive always forever and ever and ever. I always was, I always will be. I'm not just eternally existent, but I'm always alive. I am. When he calls himself the first and the last, he's using a a phrase that was in Isaiah chapter 48 where God says, I'm the creator. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. And I created, I was here before creation started. I'll be here when it's all done and all over. I was the first and I was the last, the beginning and the end. And I have sovereign control over it all. I'm the living one. And he unpacks what that means because then he says, I was dead. I did die. I mean, just in case we've missed that so far, I want you to know, I really did die. I died on the cross for you. I died rejected for you. I died alone for you under the wrath of God for you. I did that for you. I died the death you deserve to die for you. I did that. I died. I was really dead. But I'm alive forevermore, and when he says evermore, it's literally for the ages until all the ages. World without end, so to speak, like the old King James says in the prayers. World without end. All the ages. In the past, in the future, I'm alive. I'm always alive. And no one can stop me. And furthermore, I have a set of keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. Death, we're all gonna die someday. Jesus is in charge of that. Hades, the place of the dead. The grave, Sheol in the Old Testament, the place of the dead. I'm in charge of that too. How did I get in charge? Where did I get these keys? I got them when I raised from the dead. I got them when I died for you and when I came back to life. I've got those keys. I have the authority. I'm in power. I control these things. I'm the one that unlocks the door and I'm the one that locks it. I'm the one that opens it. I'm the one that shuts it. I've got the keys. I've got that authority. I've got the power over all the cosmic powers that hate you and war against you and threaten you. You don't have to be afraid. And guess what? That Jesus is with you. He's right here in this church. We don't have to be afraid of what the government does, whoever's in power. We don't have to be afraid of what the culture says or doesn't say. 
however they would come against us. We don't have to be afraid of that. We, have to be afraid of, we don't have to be afraid of any enemy power, any terrorist, any enemy that would fight against us. We don't have to be afraid of disease. We don't have to be afraid of poverty. We don't have to be afraid of any of these things that we're scared of and anxious about. We don't have to be afraid for ourselves and we don't have to be afraid for our kids and our grandkids. Why? Because Jesus is with us. He's with us. He's given us access to God as our priest. He holds us accountable as our judge to make sure we do what's right and honorable in his sight and glorify him. He's the warrior that has defeated our enemies through his death and through his resurrection. We don't have to be afraid because he lives. He even has the keys to death and Hades. So Jesus gives John, after this great comfort, he gives him a commission. Tells him he wants him to do something. And so he commands him, I want you to write down, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Verse 19, for many Bible teachers, they've said that this is like an outline of the book. You know, chapter 1, the things that were... And chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, those are the things that are. And chapter 4 and following to the end of the book, those are the things that will take place in the future. And that's, that's an easy way to divide up the book of Revelation. And maybe it is kind of like a plan for how the book should be described and what John's going to write. But it also might just simply be this. In verse 4 of chapter 1, John says, Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. God is described as he who is and who was and is to come. And it could just simply be that Jesus is saying, John, I want you to write what I tell you because I'm active in all of this. I'm God and I'm on the move. I'm working in earth's history. I'm working in the church. I'm working in the culture and the nations around it. I'm working in all these ways and I am on the move. I am doing my work and I win and I want you to write all that I do. The things that happened in the past, the things that are happening now, the things that will take place in the future. Because as you read through Revelation, it's obvious it's not all future. Some of it does go back to the past, and some of it is in the present, and some of it is definitely in the future. But it's kind of like cycling in and out over all of it. You write this message because it's my story of me being on the move in human life. And then he unpacks it even further and says in verse 20, As for the mystery of those seven stars you see in my hand and those seven golden lampstands, you want to know what those are, John? I'll tell you. He reveals the mystery here. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which doesn't help a whole lot because we wonder, what does he mean by angels? Is he talking about like guardian angels of the church? That's what many good Bible-believing conservative Bible teachers think, and that's, that's fine. I can, I can see where they're coming from. But I've always wondered, where, does, where do angels get their mail? Because they're supposed to, you know, these, these letters that are coming in chapter 20 are written to the angels of the churches. And where would you, where would you mail that if you're writing to an angel? I, I know that's snarky. I apologize. But there's a question about it. How, how does an angel repent? Because... The angels are called to repent in chapters 2 and 3 in these letters. I think it, it would be easier. I think it may be a little clearer to take the word angel at its very core definition, which just simply means messenger. 
and, and understand that those messengers are the leaders of the churches, the, the, the pastors and shepherds and elders of the church. And it's probably best to see them that way, that he's writing to the human leaders of these churches and the people in those churches. Okay? But then he says, what about the seven churches? Well, they are the seven lampstands. Those churches are there, and I'm in the midst of them, and I'm working among them. I'm trimming their wicks. I'm filling them with oil. I'm doing all this, and I'm doing this for my glory and for my honor. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fear. Even if if the terror of this world strikes you dead, you don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus, who we need to fear above everyone else, says, I'm on your side, and I'm with you. And you don't have to be afraid, because I, the priest, the judge, the warrior, have fought for you, and I have won. You don't ever have to be afraid anymore. Let me pray with you, and then we'll be on our way. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us in the days to come to really see Jesus as he really is, to understand that he's opened the door for us to have access to you, to understand that we are accountable to him. But I thank you that he's also brought us victory, that we don't have to be afraid of death and hell. We don't have to be afraid of any enemy that would threaten to harm us. Thank you that, Jesus, you are with us. So give us courage here at Littlestown Chapel. Give us courage in all our churches that we might worship you and honor you and bring glory to your name. And I thank you for your loving kindness and I thank you for your mercy. And we just praise you, Jesus. Amen.